bringing the reading of God's Word and the teaching of God's Word to us this morning is Pastor Brian Counts. Uh, he is an 04 graduate of Covenant Seminary. Uh, he's been serving uh, at our mother church uh, since 2004. Um, mother church is Joel 7, Presbyterian Church, by the way. <laughs> he's been serving there since 2004 as the, and he's currently serving now as the discipleship pastor. So welcome Brian here as he comes to bring us both the reading and the teaching of God's Word. Morning. Please turn with me to Psalm 130. Our reading this morning. As we come, this is God's word. We come needy, like we say in the first psalm. We come needy, but needing His provision for us in His word. So, this is God's word. Out of the depths, I cry to You, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And that is word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray as we start. Father, as we spend a few moments now to consider Your words for us, we pray that You make Yourself known to us. We would hear You. We would hear you and trust you, and that you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've uh, been with you before. It's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, I think I was back here in December or January, but it feels a lot longer ago than that because it was our old lives back before everything changed. Uh, you weren't so spread out. Uh, there weren't so many masks. I think I recognize most of you if you came in, some of you, but some of you, it's hard to tell. You're covering up half of your face, which is not a bad thing at all. I don't have to tell you how much has changed. Some big, some small one, small thing that's changed is if you are someone like me who likes to watch people, that's become a lot more difficult than it used to be. You know, we like to watch people. We like to see what they're going to do, figure out, wonder why, figure out their motivations. Sometimes they do odd things. Sometimes they're very predictable. But in a time of a pandemic, especially during the stay-at-home order, it was a lot harder because you just couldn't get out of it. You did. There was no one there to watch. One of the reasons I think all of us who like to watch people like that is because you can see people doing amazing things. You can see people enduring so much. Human beings are able to withstand and adapt and endure. They have incredible reservoirs of strength. And while they're able to endure with great strength on one hand, are we not also on the other incredibly fragile and incredibly weak? Case in point, we can be taken out by a sub-microscopic virus or even one little word from a loved one. So we are very strong on one hand and yet very weak, or even a better word would be helpless on the other hand. And maybe you've gone through times in your lives where you've come face to face with that helplessness maybe even more than you have in the last three or four months during the pandemic. But I think collectively as a church, a city, a country, we've come face to face with that more 
the last few months than ever before. And I wonder how each one of us has reacted. I've watched my own heart and talked to enough people to guess that you can find yourself in your reaction to the pandemic in the following multiple choice test. Are you ready? So A, you reacted to your helplessness with fear. With great fear, not knowing what was going to happen. Maybe you reacted with anger. Maybe the loss of options, the felt boxed in, maybe that created a sense of anger in you. Maybe you just sought to ignore it all and distract yourself with streaming TV, eating, drinking, something like that. <laughs> There's people raising their hands. It wasn't a raise the hand kind of multiple sales test. Or D, all of the above, which we could probably all raise our hands to D. Fear, anger, and just distract me. Just let me forget all that's going on for a little bit. And while we've all experienced that, I wonder what the right reaction is when we find that we are helpless. I think Psalm 130 gives us three responses when we're helpless. First, we can cry out. Second, we should remember. And third, we can wait with hope. So first, let's look at when we're helpless, how we can cry out. You've got still Psalm 130 there in front of you. You can see in verse 1, the psalmist says, he's in the depths. And you have to ask yourself, what are the depths? And in the Psalms, when we find the word depths, what we see referred to usually is the deep waters. When the psalmist says, out of the depths, I cry to you. What he's saying is that scary feeling where you're in water and you can't touch bottom, and you feel like you're about to go down water maybe begins to close up around your face. Maybe you've been in such a scary situation where it's represented by this kind of coming to an end of yourself. No more resources. I can't control this. The drowning man is going down. He needs a rescuer. And that's what the psalmist is saying, that he's, he's in the depths. He's beaten, he's defeated, and he's helpless. And like I said over the last three or four months, collectively we face this reality more than ever. Because we've never gone through such a long stretch where you are reminded of your mortality every single day. We in our society were really good at ignoring the fact that we were all going to die until it was in the news every day. News of the death count. We all check the Johns Hopkins website constantly early on, looking at the numbers. We've been reminded constantly of our mortality. We've been reminded of the fragility of our wealth and income. Maybe some of you have suffered financially our lost jobs through this. We've been afraid of what all that might mean. We've been reminded how we have no control. Whether you think people are underreacting to this, or whether you think they're overreacting to this, one thing is true for all of us. You can't opt out of this. There is no way out of the COVID lifestyle. If you think we're all overreacting, you say, I'm not helpless. This virus is not as bad as they all say. Great, you're still helpless because you're still in this life. You can't turn the channel of your life to no COVID. It's there. We're helpless before the circumstances sometimes. And it can be very hard to admit that we're in the depths for us, even when it's obvious. It's like a drowning man saying, no, I'm fine. I got this. I got a few more tricks up my sleeve, y'all. Don't worry. And we don't like to admit it because... We want so desperately to be the heroes of our own stories. We want to be the ones who come forward in our life with the answers. We want to be the one who come forward in the lives of our friends and our family and know that guy, that woman is a rock, and they've got it together. 
We want to be those heroes. We want to be the ones who throw ourselves the life preserver as we're drowning. But I don't think that's going to happen for the drowning man. He's not going to find that life preserver. Someone has to throw it to him. You and I, when we're in the depths, the best thing to do is to admit it and say, I can't rescue myself. I can't be the hero of my story. And therefore, I have to cry out because the solution is outside of me. The depths makes you say there's no solution inside of me. I have to cry out for help. And you hear that in verse 1, like the psalmist just is desperate. He's begging for help. He says, let your ears be attentive to my voice. Listen to my pleas for mercy. That word please is such a strong word. He's crying out. Look what he's not saying. He's not saying, God, listen, I've got 90% of this covered. What I need is just a little boost. He doesn't come bargaining with God and saying, all right, here's what I've always done really well, God. Or if you rescue me from this, here's what I'm going to give you back. He's no longer in a place saying, i got most of this, or I'm going to bargain with you. He's giving up on anything but the one he is crying out to. What about you? Maybe, like I said, maybe you've gone through something harder than this before. You learned to cry out when you were cornered in life. And now you've forgotten to cry out to God again. Maybe you've never done that before, and it feels weird, it feels foreign, but something inside of you says it's so needed and so time for it. Whatever the case might be, there's nothing better for the helpless than to admit it. There's nothing sadder than the helpless man who cannot admit it since he's still got another play. He's still got another trip. There's nowhere else left to go. So when we're helpless, and we will be, whether we are now or later, we will be, we can cry out. And secondly, when helpless, we need someone thirty says to remember. And we need to remember that God cares. We need to remember that God cares. I want you, if you've got your Bible handy, to turn over to the book of Exodus. It's the second book. Early on there. Chapter 2, verse 23. Because this, these two verses have something so similar to Psalm 130 that you can't go through Psalm 130 without pointing this out. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. The people of Israel are in slavery and they're stuck. And it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. In other words, they're in the depths. They've got nowhere else to go. And here it is, they cried out for help. Sounds like Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. Psalmist is saying, God, hear me. Let your ears be attentive. Exodus 2 says, God hears. God hears your cry. And God remembered his covenant. He remembers his promise. He doesn't forget. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. When it says God knows, it doesn't just mean if you got a question on a test, would he know that you're suffering? Would he know that you're in the depths? When it says God knew, it means he identified with them. He felt it too. God knew their suffering and their pain as well. So when we're in the depths, we know when we cry out that God hears us, and that he sees us, and that he knows. We remember that he cares. We also can remember what he's done. And I want you to know here in verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 130, what he's saying. He's saying, God, I'm in a helpless situation now in the depths, but I remember a time when I was in an even more helpless situation in what you did. And that even more 
more helpless situation is described in verse 3 when he says, If you were to mark sins, who could stand? What the psalmist is saying is that he is accountable to a perfect and holy God who made him. He's accountable to love that God perfectly and to love his fellow man perfectly. And he's saying, God, I can't do that. If you were to mark that, who could stand? Who among us could say, I have always loved God perfectly, and I have always, always, and always loved my fellow man perfectly. We have to be honest and say that we have been far from that. Too often, instead of loving God and loving people, if you're like me, you love yourself. You put yourself first. You're looking out for number one. Like we prayed earlier, it's hard not to make life all about ourselves. And if God is to mark that, the psalmist says, who could stand? In other words, to stand before God is to say, I can look you in the face, O God, and know that I am unashamed. Because he marks our sins, we can't stand before him. But what does he say? God, I was in that helpless situation, and you forgave me. God, if you have helped me out of that most helpless of situations, with you there is forgiveness, verse 4 says. Therefore, I know that now in the depths, if you've helped me in an even more helpful situation, then remember that you can help me even now. We remember what Romans chapter 5, verse 2 says, that through Jesus we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And that's, of course, the same word as Psalm 130. Paul in Romans 5 is saying, in grace you can stand before God. If God marks our sins, we can't stand before Him. But in grace, we can. Because all of those sins, lack of love for God and others, has been forgiven. So I can look Him in the face without shame and stand before Him because of grace. And it says, through Jesus. And this psalm makes me think about how we will always know that when we cry out to God, He will hear us. Because Jesus took our place. All the punishment of our lack of love of God and others, He took for us. And on the cross, he cried out to God. And God did not answer him. There in the depths, God did not answer him because he was taking that punishment. And now because all the punishment has been taken, we know that as we trust him, God will always hear us. Because once he did not hear Jesus, we remember what God has done. We also remember what God is like. In verse 7, it says, With the Lord is steadfast love. In the Old Testament, when you see the term steadfast love, it's a very special description of what God is like. And we translate it steadfast love because we don't have a word in English that directly fits the original Hebrew word. The original Hebrew word means love, but it also has shades or tones of loyalty and mercy and kindness. So if you take those four words, love and loyalty and mercy and kindness, you put them in a pot, stir, outcomes. This Hebrew word that we translate steadfast love. And the psalmist says, with God is steadfast love. We need to remember what he's like. The best way I can tell you what it means is to tell you a story where the word is used in 2 Samuel 9. The story of Mephibosheth. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, even though it's hard to say the name of the main character, Mephibosheth. I had to practice it before I came to preach here for y'all this morning. Mephibosheth, when we meet him in 2 Samuel 9, his life is not good. Even though he had been the grandson of a king. And I say had been the grandson of a king because his grandfather was King Saul. And 
King Saul's kingdom was cut short because of his sin and unfaithfulness. So typically, descendants of a former king don't expect to be winning any popularity contests under the reign of the new king. So Mephibosheth goes into hiding. So from the royal family to hiding. And he's not just hiding, he's going from riches to poverty because he's lost his family lands. He's lost his income. So he's in hiding, he's poor, he has nothing, he's living in someone else's house. And on top of all that, he's, uh, the scripture says, crippled in both legs and unable to walk. And he's living in a town that's literally translated no pasture, or you could call it nowhere. <laughs> he's living in nowheresville, the grandson of a former king, in hiding, the enemy of the state, crippled, no money. This is not good. His life is not good. He's just fearful of the day, I imagine, when King David is going to discover him. King David is the new king. But the story turns because David wants to keep a promise he made to Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And Jonathan was David's best friend. And Jonathan knew that David was going to be king instead of him. And so Jonathan said, David promised me when you come to the throne, you'll be kind to my family. A huge request to ask a new king to be kind to the family of the former king. But David, out of love for Jonathan, says, yes, I will show kindness. I will show steadfast love to your family. So David asks, is there anyone left of Saul's family to whom I can show the steadfast love of God? And they say, well, there's this one guy named Mephibosheth. He's out there in nowhere's town. We'll go and get him. So imagine being Mephibosheth. You get a knock on the door and it says, King David wants to see you. What are you thinking? It's all up. It's over. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm a dead man. So he goes there, having to stand before the king. There's that word again, having to stand before the king. He can't do it on his own, because he's, in a sense, shamed of his family. And King David then says, Mephibosheth, okay. I'm going to restore all your family's lands to you. No small thing. And I know you can't work it, so I'm going to give you servants who can work it, so you'll have an income. Mephibosheth's mind has to be just blowing up right now. Instead of getting the death sentence like he thought, he's becoming a rich man. And David says, I don't want you to live on your lands. I want you to live here in Jerusalem. Because I want you to eat at my table. Not just tonight, not just this week, every day. King David says, I'm going to eat with you, fellowship with you, every day. You're going to become like family to me. That's steadfast love. That's this word. That's what God is like. Because David says, is there anyone left whom I can show the steadfast love of God? David loves Jonathan and keeps his promise. He's loyal to his promise. He shows Mephibosheth mercy and kindness. That must have just absolutely blown his mind. And so when you and I are in the depths, we remember that with God is steadfast love. Love, loyalty, mercy, and kindness. And thirdly, when we're helpless, we wait with hope. And we're thinking specifically about verses 5 and 6 here, the end of the psalm, where it says, I wait for God more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And psalm 130, especially those few lines, is this beautiful bit of poetry. You can read it in a few seconds. But man, it can take a lifetime to get it into your life. So many psalms are that way, aren't they? They're six verses long, 12 verses long, whatever. 
And they describe sometimes this miraculous seeming change in the psalmist's heart where he goes from fear to confidence. And you want to be able to get that in your own life as fast as it takes to read the psalm. But psalms sometimes shrink time down from what it takes years to get in our lives down into one psalm or one bit of poetry. And I think that's what's happening here. How do we wait on God? Which is just to say, how do we trust Him over time? And I don't mean waiting on God that you sit on your hands and do nothing when there is something to do. What I mean is you don't trust in that. In times when there is nothing you can do, that you still trust in the Lord. Whether your circumstances change or not, because there's no indication in this psalm that his circumstances change, even though his perspective changes from one to eight at the end. So how do we wait with hope, especially when our circumstances don't change? And I think the psalm says the answer is we take God's forgiveness seriously. And that's why verse 4 ends with what can sound strange to our ears when it says, with you is forgiveness that you may be feared. Usually we think of being afraid of God or fearing God when it comes to His judgment. Do I need to be afraid of His punishment for what I have done wrong? But this verse says, with forgiveness there is fear. You might know that in the Bible there's a range of meanings for how the fear of the Lord is used. Sometimes it's I'm afraid, and sometimes, well, every time, it means at least taking Him seriously. To fear the Lord is to take God seriously. And that might mean taking His judgment seriously, but it also means taking His grace seriously. And when God says you're forgiven, that you believe it, and that you feel like that, and you live like that, and you shape your life around that, to say, God, I believe you forgive me, but I'm still wallowing in guilt and shame, is the opposite of taking God seriously. So sometimes fearing the Lord brings great freedom and enjoyment and peace. And when we do take that forgiveness seriously, do you see how waiting on God becomes possible? Because even if your circumstances don't change, you know, hey, in a more helpless situation, He rescued me. And if He rescued me in that most helpless of situations, He's going to rescue me now. I just have to wait. I think Psalm 130 is the Romans 8.32 of the Old Testament. It's a great verse that you might know. It says, God who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 says, God gave us Jesus Christ, the most precious, valuable thing there is. And if He did that, I can even if my circumstances don't change. Because I know if He gave me that, He's going to give me all things. I just have to wait. And so when we do that, when we wait with hope, I think we'll do two things that sound different, but they're not. The first thing we'll do is watch. And the second thing we'll do is sleep. When I say we'll watch for God, what I mean is more than a watchman waits for the morning. And again, there's this beautiful bit of poetry here. We're in the Hebrew... The root word for mark, as in God marking our sins, is the same root word as watch. So when he says, God no longer marks my sin, because I'm forgiven. God no longer watches after my sin. He's put it all behind. And if God no longer watches for my sin, I will watch for God. God no longer marks our sins, so we watch for Him. What that means is we watch for what God's teaching us, doing in us while we're in the depths. 
It means that we watch and pray for our circumstances to change. It's a great thing to pray when we're in the depths. But it also means, God, I'm going to watch for your ultimate deliverance, whether the circumstances change or not. So we'll watch, and then we'll sleep. To show you what I mean by sleep, I want to take you to the story of Acts chapter 12. A story about James and Peter, two of the twelve disciples. Two of not just the twelve disciples, but the inner three of Jesus. In Acts 12, James is arrested by King Herod for being a Christian, for preaching about Jesus. He's thrown into jail the next week. And this makes King Herod more popular. King Herod likes being more popular. So he says, maybe I can repeat this, do something similar. I'll arrest one of James' friends, another one, this time Peter, and I'll execute him, and I'll become even more popular. But he waits for a few days because it's the feast of the Passover, and there Peter sits in jail. And before he can be executed, he is miraculously rescued by an angel. James loses his life. A few verses later, a few days later even, Peter is dramatically rescued. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a stressful situation or when I'm in what feels like the depths, the first thing to go is sleep. I lie there awake at night, wondering, how am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do? Right? Now, in Acts 12, when Peter is waiting, not knowing how it's going to go, what's he doing? Sleeping. He's sleeping. I think he got Psalm 130. Because there he is in the depths. He doesn't know if he's getting out or not. We know the end of the story. He doesn't. He's sound asleep, chained to multiple guards. What has to be on his mind is that a few years before that, to the weekend, his friend Jesus had been arrested and killed. A few days or weeks before that, his friend James had been killed. He's in the depths, and yet he goes to sleep. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what can be true for us when we get it. Sometimes we're dramatically rescued by people. Sometimes we're James. We don't see our rescue until we see the Lord, until we die. But the rescue is coming. So, when we're helpless, when we're in the depths, Psalm 130 says to cry out, God hears, God cares. When we're helpless, we remember what He's done and what He's like, His steadfast love. And when we're helpless, we wait with hope. Wait and watch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, every part of it. We thank you that it talks about the hard things in life when we are in the depths. Father, I pray that whether we're in the depths right now or not, when those times of acute helplessness come, that we would be able, Lord, to cry out. We would be able to see your work in our lives. Whether we see it or not, Lord, I pray that we will wait. Knowing that Jesus was the one who cried out and never heard back from you, so that we can be those who cry out and always hear from you. We pray this in his name. Amen.